Welcome to the Yale History Podcast, an interview series from the Department of History at Yale University. I'm Kevin Gludhill, a historian of early modern and modern Iran, Russia, and the Caspian Sea. And I'm joined on today's podcast by Professor Joseph Manning, William K. and Marilyn Milton Simpson Professor of Classics, Professor of History, and Senior Research Scholar in Law at Yale University. He's a specialist in the history of Ptolemaic Egypt, that is to say the Hellenistic period from the 4th century BCE to the 1st century BCE. So he's written very widely on ancient Egypt in the centuries leading up to its incorporation into the Roman Empire. We'll be discussing a period that will be familiar to many listeners, even those who don't particularly specialize in the history of Egypt or Rome or the ancient Mediterranean. Because we're looking at the period in the middle of the first century BCE, the time in which Egypt is brought fully into the Roman state, the time of Rome's transition from republic to empire, and the crises that that entailed. But Professor Manning offers a new way of thinking about this period. In a 2020 article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States, which he co-authored with numerous other historians, classicists, and climate scientists, Professor Manning and his co-authors issue a call to think about this period from an environmental point of view. Their article is entitled Extreme Climate After Massive Eruption of Alaska's Okmok Volcano in 43 BCE and Effects on the Late Roman Republic and Ptolemaic Kingdom. And this article shows massive environmental effects spreading out from this eruption in the Aleutian Islands felt across the Northern Hemisphere, creating one of the coldest decades of the last 2,500 years, with effects felt from Greenland to Northern Europe to China and many points in between. Today we'll be discussing then what occurred at Okmok, some of the ways in which historians can study the impacts of volcanic eruption, the impacts of climate, and how this might fit alongside sources from the ancient Mediterranean to enrich and, and deepen and nuance our understanding of this moment of the end of the Roman Republic, of the end of the Ptolemaic Kingdom between the 40s and 30s BC. So this is a very exciting topic, a potential field for significant new research, and I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Manning and to explore this topic here on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Manning. It's great to be here. Thank you, Kevin. What we're going to discuss today, we're talking about an article entitled Extreme Climate After Massive Eruption of Alaska's Okmuk Volcano in 43 BCE and effects on the late Roman Republic and Ptolemaic Kingdom. You're one of many co-authors of this article. It was published last summer in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States. And in this article, you know, it addresses the impacts of major volcanic eruptions, most particularly of the Okmuk volcano in Alaska in 43 BCE, but others are mentioned, uh, including Mount Etna the year before. And it overlays the environmental data with the history of one of the best known periods and crises of the ancient Roman world. So I wanted to start with some context. What is happening in the, in the Mediterranean world during the 40s and 30s BCE? And how have historians generally understood this period up till now? Well, where do we begin? The whole first century BC is an interesting period in the history of the Mediterranean world, um, in particular. Indeed, most of the focus has been on, on Rome, of course, but there's a much wider world, a lot of things happening in the Eastern Mediterranean. It is 
sort of the culmination of the end of what we call the Hellenistic period, these states that form after Alexander the Great's campaigns uh, throughout the, the old Persian Empire, and the major transition from the Roman Republic formally to the Roman Empire at the end of the first century BC. So there's a lot of things going on, primarily historians focus on the political instability in places like the late Roman Republic in Rome, elsewhere in the Roman world, and the end of these great Hellenistic states, the Ptolemies in Egypt with Cleopatra, the last of them, the last to survive before being taken over by, by Rome. So most historians focus on the, the politics of the period, um, and in particular, what's called now the intra-elite competition uh, among Roman elites in the last, say, uh, 50, 60 years BC at Rome. So what is meant by this inter-elite competition and what were some of its political and, and social consequences? Well, Rome is uh, fairly unstable. Other states are too, of course. There's a lot of wealth distribution problems. There's a lot of competition among elites, uh, mainly in the, in the realm of prosecuting wars outside of Rome. This is how uh, elites um, compete for prestige, for example. So it's a complex picture for sure, socioeconomically, of course. We tend to focus on, on the Roman narratives that we have around these famous people like Julius Caesar, who's named formerly a dictator in 49 BC to try to establish political, political equilibrium in what is a very unstable world, um, socially and economically, um, a lot of wealth, a lot of problems of distribution of, of wealth or income inequality, we might say these days, going on in, in Roman society, um, at a time when Rome had been expanding tremendously in the Mediterranean world, first with its wars with Carthage, and then its wars in the Greek world and further east in the eastern Mediterranean basin. So, you know, political instability expansion of formerly the Roman Republic, but really Rome becoming an empire over the course of the last two centuries BC, and so on. I mean, that's what historians have, have tended to focus on, or these sort of things. Um, and of course, a lot of modern historians might be surprised by this, but we're dealing with very complex societies in, in, in Rome itself, but also in the Eastern Mediterranean places like Egypt. These are large, complex society with a lot of moving parts, of course, which we are beginning to understand with a little bit more nuance these days. So that kind of situates us in this moment, right? You know, we're looking mm -hmm. at very complex societies in a moment of profound economic and political shifts. By mm -hmm. the end of the 30s BC, we're seeing the, mm -hmm. the end of the Ptolemaic kingdom, you know, the Roman mm -hmm. transition to empire of, of Augustus. And with all of that in mind, right, you know, this article takes us to a very different and very distant place from the ancient Mediterranean uh, to the Aleutian Islands yes. of today's Alaska. So I was hoping, you know, you could tell us a little bit about the Akmok volcano, the Akmok eruption, and what this meant for, you know, the Mediterranean world so far away. Uh, it's a great question. Um, it's I think it's really exciting. Again, it's we're adding, I think, with the climate data we have now, another dimension to pre-modern or pre-industrial history, something that I think modern listeners would fully understand, um, that is, um, humans live in and depend on the environment in general, environmental constraints, um, environmental change. We can begin to see that now 
even in the pre-modern world. So Ukmuk um, is one of the volcanoes on this fantastic island. I'm talking to you from Anchorage now. I'm hoping to go back here in August to, to get onto the island, at least to fly over the volcano if we get good weather down there. The Middle Oceans are quite volcanic, part of the Ring of Fire, of course, in the Pacific. Interestingly, these are very large volcanoes here. They're not so well understood in terms of their eruptive history yet. We know that Ukmuk erupted um, many times. Indeed, it's still an active volcano. And you can see satellite images um, on, online of, of Ukmuk on a clear day, to, and you see this enormous crater. And we knew it erupted mid-first century BC, plus or minus several decades either side. So we had sort of some resolution on that volcano, um, like we do others, but we didn't know exactly when it erupted. But now we do, we think, because of some really interesting geochemistry. Um, and it's established as winter of 43 BC now. And that's really exciting to get that specific, because that changes not only, I think, historical analysis to a large extent now, but it, it changes climate history and climate modeling. And we have a very precise pinpoint of a, of a large eruption. And we can get into why eruptions matter for, for climate in a moment. But the initial excitement is that this specific volcano has now been fingerprinted and dated to 43 BC. And that is the caldera forming eruption that you can still see. You can still see the caldera of Ukmuk. I think it's about 10 kilometers wide. So it's quite large, quite, quite dramatic. So that's all very exciting. And a lot of work follows from that basic identification. So you mentioned that we could talk also about the the significance of volcanic eruptions and the impacts that it might have had. So that brings us back to, you know, this question of, of what was the effect of Okmuk's eruption and including in places very far from, mm. from Alaska? Yeah, great. So, you know, it, it's surprising. I find it rather fascinating to contemplate, indeed, <laughs> that an Alaskan eruption actually perturbs the Roman world and the world of Cleopatra. And in fact, the world of South Asia and China too. So Okmuk is not your ordinary volcanic eruption. It's been identified as the largest northern hemisphere eruption in the last two and a half thousand years. So it's uh, in the catalog of volcanic eruptions, it's a relatively large eruption. That's important. And we know that very large eruptions, eruptions um, that inject sulfates from the eruption into the stratosphere so that the sulfates from the eruption have to get pretty high. Um, it circulates hemispherically uh, and that, that reduces solar radiation that reaches the earth and therefore cooling. Um, and that cooling has other effects, including perturbing the monsoon rain zone around the world, uh, either weakens it or prevents the monsoon from migrating northward in the summer months entirely. And that has very dramatic effects on, on drought patterns, of course. So there's this great connectivity or what climate scientists call teleconnection between a very large Northern hemisphere eruption like Okmuk and the global climate system. And we, we know that from other kinds of what we call climate proxies now, like tree rings from California, for example, that show this very dramatic cooling after Okmuk in 43 BC, quite, quite clearly. 
it cools the earth for, for around a decade, which is a little bit unusual. A lot of eruptions, a single eruption, a large one, maybe for a year or two uh, in its impact. But we know Okmuk had a, had a very large impact on the, on the global climate system for quite a while. Could you say a little more actually about some of the, the, the means of, of assessing the impacts of Okmuk? You talk about tree rings in California mm. as one. I'm curious, I'm a historian very comfortable with textual sources, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think most of us train, train in that way. And, and I'm curious, sure. um, what types of, of evidence do you find in different locations? And, and, and how does this point us to some of these conclusions about how significant this eruption may have been? What climate historians are, are, are now um, using what we call climate proxies, which are natural records, tree rings, what are called speleothems, cave stalagmites or stalactites, for example, that tell us something about colder, warmer, or wetter, drier, basically. Those are, those are the options. Um, there are other kinds of climate records, too. And because nowadays, the last few years, we're getting what we call high-resolution records, that is annual records or even sub-annual records, that's where historians come in. Because as I suggested with Okmuk and a lot of volcanic eruptions, plus or minus 50 years, plus or minus a century, that was the chronological resolution of a lot of climate proxies until recently. And if you're an historian interested in climate, it's really tough to do historical analysis, plus or minus 50 years, even for me, with my work on Egyptian material, because the, the, there's a lot of historical documentation from Egypt that's dated to the day, the day, month, and the specific year. I have thousands of such things from Egypt in the papyri. For example, you really can't, you couldn't use climate records, but because the resolution of climate data now is becoming so precise, it's becoming historical, it's becoming annual. Now we can begin to line up historical written records written sources, sometimes even archaeological sources, with climate proxy data on the same chronological resolution, as it were, if you see what I mean. Um, that's the revolution that's going on in the last handful of years now, and it's terribly exciting indeed. So if we could then kind of move our focus back towards the Mediterranean a little bit, right? We've, mm. we're, we're coming to understand the, the size and scope of this eruption in Alaska. Some of the ways in which we can measure its impacts in places as far away as, you know, caves in China, trees in Scandinavia or in California, ice records in, in Greenland. But to move back to the Mediterranean, you know, I was really struck in the article by this discussion of writers in the Roman world observing or, or writing about all these different natural phenomena, mm -hmm. um, writing about the crises of this moment. And, and I'm curious, I mean, first of all, what are some of the things that people are writing about this or writing about this time? And how might we understand them in light of, you know, in light of this, this new data about, about eruptions? So, so we've long known that something's going on climatologically in the 40s BC, uh, because we have a lot of descriptions by Roman authors um, of the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC, and some of this, the strange observations of the sun and the sky in general. Um, and we've, we've known also that Vesuvius is probably erupting in between 44 and 42. 
So, you know, the sort of portends in the sky and the assassination of Caesar sort of has has been associated, you know, since the Roman writers themselves who are describing these uh, these very momentous events in the Roman world. And scholars have thought for decades that, that there must be a volcanic eruption and it's probably it's probably Etna in Sicily that's erupting. I may have said Vesuvius, sorry. I, I mean Etna in uh, in Sicily that was erupting 44 to 42. That's been sort of the the standard line is the Etna eruption is causing all this, both the strange astronomical observations, the context of Julius Caesar, but maybe even some of the other social events afterwards. And we've come along to say, well, no, it's not Etna for a lot of reasons. Etna is not a particularly large volcanic uh, volcano in terms of eruptive history generally. It doesn't show up in the polar ice cores in Antarctica or, or Greenland, as, as far as I know. So Etna is a volcano in the Mediterranean that's constantly erupting. Um, and indeed, it may have caused local atmospheric effects in 44 BC, the blood red uh, moon, the sun dogs, these veils around the sun, and so on, you know, sort of local effects, but not the global effects on climate that we're seeing. So we are fairly certain now um, that it's this Alaskan eruption in 43 that is causing these really big effects. So we have this sort of compounding impact of probably a local eruption of, of Etna, a lot of political um, drama. And then the year later or so, this very large Northern Hemisphere um, eruption that cools, cools the Earth's climate, the Northern Hemisphere for a decade, um, imposing um, very wet conditions actually in the Northern Mediterranean world, but causes the Nile River to fail for several years in a row, which is, we can get to the Egypt story, if you'd like, but you know, Egypt, obviously, the Egypt of Cleopatra is deeply connected politically to Rome in the 40s BC and also economically because of grain supply that's coming from Egypt to Rome. So these are intertwined states, often told in terms of you know, the romance of Antony and Cleopatra, of course, um, but there's much more to it than that politically and historically. Reading in the article, I was really struck by just how much of a climate impact in terms of temperatures that, you know, mm. I think you, you and your co-authors said up to seven degrees Celsius cooler during this period, which, which would have been such an enormous disruption of, of agriculture, of, of the mm -hmm. lives of people, almost hard to fathom. But I do want to then ask about that Egyptian story a little bit, right? Because you talk about sure. how meticulously documented Egypt is during this period. And so I'm curious, first of all, of how these factors would have then led to the failure of the Nile floods that you talk about, and also mm -hmm. how well documented the, these impacts are in, in Egypt during this era. Yeah, so actually, ironically, and probably for a reason, the historical records we have from Egypt in the 40s BC are, are fairly scarce. You know, we don't know a lot directly from Egyptian sources themselves. We do have some. But the story of Cleopatra's Egypt is generally told from the victorious Roman point of view afterwards uh, by Augustus for political propagandistic reasons, trying to write Egypt out of the, out of the story entirely, especially Cleopatra. So we tend to have a, the Roman version of events in Egypt. But I think there are enough hints now to show that 
Cleopatra had a really difficult time, even from the very beginning, a young woman in control in a, a very dangerous world, of course. And even around 50 BC, um, the Nile's failing. The Nile fails for, for other reasons than large volcanic eruptions, of course. Um, there's natural variability. There are El Nino events probably as well that, that drive the reduction of Nile flow. So we know the Nile fails in 50 and 49, probably 48 BC. And we know it fails in 43, 42, 41, and probably through the, the early 30s um, BC. So, and of course, the Nile River flood is, is how Egypt works. That's how it produces grain, of course. There's also the underestimated psychological impact of Nile flood failures, um, which the Egyptians took quite seriously as an indication of some, some dangerous religious and political things. We shouldn't underestimate that. The Egyptians took this psychological impact, the, the meaning of now flood failure, quite seriously. So the entire 40s BC looked um, like a very difficult period in Egyptian history. We know now's failing quite a lot, which is going to have an impact on grain production and probably food shortages, food crises. And there's also, in Egyptian history, even as my colleague Alan McHale has shown for later, there's connection between flood failures and disease. And we shouldn't forget the animals too, who um, are under great stress. So from what we can tell, the 40s BC in Egypt, this transitional period, really, um, when Cleopatra is making political alliances with Roman generals and so on, also sort of plotting a, probably a, a revival of the Egyptian um, empire. Egypt's getting hit by crisis after crisis. Um, so it, the, the picture we can build, although far from complete, really suggests some, some pretty difficult times in a place like Egypt. So bad for Egypt itself, but also bad for Rome and other places that depended in the 40s BC on the import of Egyptian grain. Thank you. And I think that gives us a, a much more rounded picture of both the political and military situation of Egypt and Rome in this period, mm -hmm. and also of how the these environmental factors could play out in each and, and leading us toward, you know, ultimately by 31, the Battle of Actium, the fall of the Ptolemaic kingdom that follows, mm -hmm. and the emergence of Augustus as, as emperor in mm -hmm. Rome. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to ask what you would offer in terms of big takeaways about the significance of Okmo and connected to Etna specifically in this period, and about a little bit about the potential for, for environmental and climatological history of the ancient world. Yeah, so um, it, it's important to note that unlike some of our critics so far who have engaged with us, who suggest we're, we're just being climate determinists and making these causal arguments, we are not making uh, direct causal linkages between this very large eruption and the political events that we, we know really well. What we suggest, though, is um, that we have to take account of the impact of a really large eruption like Okmuk, which creates, after all, the fourth coldest decade in human history. It probably does have consequences socially um, and economically in a world that was already deeply unstable for lots of other reasons. And so the climate data now, even from the ancient world, which is, we're getting, I mean, every week we get new data. So we're just beginning. What we want to do and what we would argue is that environment 
environmental constraints, environmental change, long-term, short-term changes are an important factor in human society. That's not, I don't think, particularly revolutionary, um, but it is for ancient history especially because ancient history, as I suggested already, has tended to be political history. And that's it. It's all about politics. But you can't have politics without the society, um, without economy, without even things like human emotion, food supply, and, and so on. And they're all connected, obviously. Um, and so what, what, we're, what we hope to do with our project and others, I'm sure, have the same hopes is to reconstruct a richer human world from for pre-modern times. It's not just politics by itself kind of floating in the sky. It's politics, economics, military actions, um, but also climate and environment and um, climactic change, which is an element in human societies always. Thank you. I wanted to ask one more thing, and, and maybe your previ- your last answer points me a little bit towards understanding this, but you know, a lot of your earlier work is focused on such a really broad range of questions about ancient, particularly Ptolemaic Egypt and the Mediterranean, state institutions, mm-hmm. land and economy, law. I'm curious what mm-hmm. brought you to this particular project and, and how research like this with so many different contributors in the physical sciences and the humanities, how, how research like this comes together and, and, and what led you to it? Yeah, well, this is, I mean, it's the exciting thing. And I, I probably have, have always been around the topic, actually. Um, so, I mean, my main interest is, is in how societies work, which means I think you have to be broad and comparative. Um, so that's number one. Uh, my training is, is on Egyptian material um, and the Egyptian papyri, which I, is the best documented region for, of the ancient Mediterranean world, um, certainly. And if you work on Egypt, you have to understand how the Nile works. And how the Nile works is, is you know, since antiquity, since Herodotus and before even, this has been an interesting question, this strange river. Um, and why does it flood in the summertime? And, and how does the river work? And what about the variability of flood year by year and so on? This is how Egypt has worked in, until the high dam at Aswan in, in the 1960s. So this has always been an interest of mine. I don't know, gosh, seven, eight years ago, I decided that I wanted to know more about paleoclimatology because I knew there was a lot happening and I didn't have my brain around it at all. So I applied for some money at Yale and we put a working group together. We had some nice dinners. We brought in famous paleoclimatologists to have conversations and lectures and, and networking. And um, coincident with that was Francis Ludlow, who's now at Trinity College Dublin, who was a postdoc in Yale history department. At the time, you know, we met and he was part of the group and I, uh, he's a um, very talented climate historian and has worked on volcanic impacts and um, medieval Ireland. That's his specialty for a long time. So I learned a lot from him. And after one dinner at our favorite restaurant um, in New Haven, we were sitting around and he was showing me a preprint of a paper that ultimately became this famous paper now, came out in Nature and 2015, the summer of 2015, on revising the chronology of volcanic eruptions from polar ice cores, Greenland and Antarctica. And I saw these, the volcanic signals in the ice, you know, sort of year by year. And I saw the the last three centuries BC, which is a period I know pretty well. 
And I recognized the, the volcanic peaks as periods of crisis in Egypt, almost every one. I couldn't believe it. I, you know, I mean, literally kind of fell off my chair. And Frank, you know, there's something to this. What, what, is, what is going on with large volcanoes and the Nile? But um, it looks like there's this connection between these things and these periods of intense social unrest that we know about that are well documented. So that was a, that was a genesis of, of our National Science Foundation funding um, and the project. Frank has been instrumental that a lot of other people too, Jen Marlin and the, the School of the Environment at Yale as part of the project. And we, you know, we formed these alliances um, that we now have from that kind of origin and me going to, now I go to more science meetings than history meetings. I go to the AGU every year, which is this fantastic conference with 30,000 plus people and you just network, at least I do. Um, you walk through the poster sessions and meet people and you learn, um, you form friendships and ask a lot of questions. And that's how it's gone the last seven or eight years um, for me. So we have fallen into this project sort of by accident in a way, but it's also irresistible once you see the climate data. I think historians, even ancient historians, can't ignore it. I mean, the, the only the challenge and the, the question is, um, how do you use the data to write smart or smarter history? You know, not just determinist history to see climate data point and historical event, you know, is to do much more sophisticated history. Now, that's the challenge. It's not easy, of course, to do that. <laughs> and this is what we're working on um, every day these days. You know, you said this, uh, this project came together little by little, you know, gradually. And, and I just want to say, you know, I'm, I'm, so glad that it has. I think this really points us in some Thank you. exciting directions, and and I, I've I've really enjoyed the the piece. Um, thank you, Dr. Manning. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a great pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for asking. My thanks again to Professor Manning for sharing these preliminary conclusions about the impacts of the eruption of the Okmok volcano. I think it's very significant to consider these environmental, ecological effects and how they might challenge and nuance established views of this period. As Professor Manning notes, it's very difficult to be definitive or prescriptive about the impacts of the Okmok eruption on the politics and the conflicts of this period, but that it's a new factor that must be taken into account given the massive social and economic disruptions that, that it caused, the damage it must have done in the lives of individuals across the Northern Hemisphere. And therefore, this offers a really good starting point for reevaluating what we can know about the ancient world beyond source bases that tell us much of the ideological and political content for our study of this period. This allows the possibility for even more nuanced and rounded views of the ancient past. And I'm very excited about the potential for further research in the field. My thanks again to Professor Manning, to his co-authors who worked on this project. The music from today's episode is the song Over the Water Humans Gather by Dr. Turtle. It carries a Creative Commons International license. And I want to thank you for listening. And I hope you'll join me again on the next episode of the Yale History Podcast. Mm-hmm.